Pumpkin Spice Podcast, coming at you with an incredibly frightening and spooky bonus episode this October. I'm Rob Schulte, and today I'm joined by a special guest. She's the managing editor for Daily Dead, the author of Monster Squad, celebrating the artists behind cinema's most memorable creatures, and she's a member of the advisory board for a new documentary called In Search of Darkness. It's Heather Wixon. Hi, Heather. Welcome to Pumpkin Spice Podcast. Hey, Rob. Thank you so much for having me. I am very excited to chat about some horror stuff and also 80s horror, especially. It is kind of uh, uh, the best way to dip any sort of toes into horror, I'd say. <laughs> yeah, I would say it's probably the most accessible decade for, for horror, I think, because uh, I feel like 70s, you have to sort of respect the uh, the, the aesthetic a little bit more. Um, sure. And sort of what the things that they were pushing at that time in 80s. I mean, there was definitely things that were thought provoking happening in that decade. But it was a it was a decade about fun in the genre. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, there Absolutely. Was, yeah, there's no martyrs happening in the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> uh, before we get into today's episode, can you tell me a little bit about Monster Squad and your day-to-day relationship with horror films? Yes, absolutely. Um, so I have been writing about horror movies now professionally for about 11 years, and I've been over at Daily Dead now for five. Um, basically, what I do there is I do a lot of our interviews and reviews. Um, for as much as I'm, a lot of my career is sort of centered around the history of the genre. Um, that's just something that's always really appealed to me. But I'm also really big into finding new horror to kind of fall in love with, uh, especially like through film festivals and stuff like that. Um, so I've just been really fortunate that, you know, I was a little horror geek growing up in the <laughs> suburbs of Chicago that somehow f- managed to find a way to make this into a career, uh, which I still can't believe even after over over this much time now, I'm still kind of waking up every day like, wow, this is really my life. Um, but yeah, I've, I've always been sort of a big fan of like the underdogs um, out there. And I always thought, you know, not that they weren't always getting their credit, but I don't feel like a lot of folks really appreciated the things that special effects artists were doing in order for us to kind of fall in love with these movies. I mean, they do these creations, they give up their lives because it is a very demanding position. And I just felt like for as many books and, you know, articles and things like that out there that talked about like the how to's and sort of the, you know, the overall Mm -hmm. monsters, nothing really dived into the lives of these people who, you know, were responsible for some of our favorite monsters that we've seen over the years. So that was my intention with Monster Squad is that, you know, I love it. Yeah, I wanted to just, you know, put these people's lives out there because I, you know, I feel like, oh, yeah, like that's cool that they worked on this or they it's cool they worked on that. But if you kind of hear the stories maybe behind them, it gives you a little more insight, I think. And also, you know, and I'm not saying this in a bad way about like, you know, the bigger guys like, you know, the Rick Bakers and the Tom, the Tom Savinis and the Stan Winstons and stuff. But there's a lot of times when I'll see, you know, especially now after going through this process for over two and a half years where somebody's like, Oh, I really love this monster from Stan Winston. And I was like, technically, I mean, that's five other guys, you know, and that was their passion (laughs) and stuff. And that's not me trying to disrespect Stan Winston because what he did for this industry is, you know, unprecedented in terms of making sure artists were being represented on a business side of things. But he was, you know, he was kind of the figurehead at, at certain points. And so it was guys, you know, like Steve Wang or Tom Woodruff Jr., or Alec Gillis or Shane Mahan, 
um, John Rosengrant, those kind of guys. These are the guys whose stories should deserve to be out there just as much. Um, and so that was kind of the focus of, of what I was doing. And so the first one is out there and the second one I'm working on wrapping up now. Um, so it's been, you know, it's been a several years process. Um, I've learned a lot and I, it's, it's been incredible. It's, it's an incredible thing. Like the fact that these people trust me with their live stories, like I never in a million years would have, I, imagine that that could have happened. Like I was surprised the first yes I got, let alone the 44th yes I got. So it's it's been really incredible. Totally. I I know exactly where you're coming from. We were actually talking about Monster Squad, a buddy of mine named who's a writer out here in New York named Mike Sachs, and he was telling me that it was one of his uh well, we were talking about all sorts of special effects in general, but anytime he picks up a book that has like detailed histories of that sort of thing. It's like his favorite thing to do. And he did something very similar with comedy writers where you go through and just like, I can't believe I got one interview and I can't believe I got all the rest. And it's, and it's so great how, when you can go into whether it be comedy, special effects, horror, the people who want to talk are just ready to talk for, for days and days. It seems. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of my interviews that I did for book one, I think, clocked in well over five and a half hours when everything was said and done. So it definitely, uh, it helped with my interviewing skills a lot too, because some of these would, you know, I'd be on the phone with them for two to three to sometimes five hours. So it was, it was a really great process for me. And I'm just happy that I was able to put, you know, these folks in the spotlight a little bit because they really deserved it. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, before we get into the meat of today's episode, can you give me a little bit of an overview of In Search of Darkness? Yeah, so I, this project kind of came onto my radar a, a few months ago uh, when I sort of saw it pop up on Twitter. And really, this is all sort of the brain ch- brainchild of Robin Block, who's put together an amazing team of people um, who, you know, want to come together and celebrate, you know, what we easily feel like is the best decade of horror. Um so I came into it, you know, about a month and a half ago, and initially it was just to kind of come on board to, you know, be one of the participants. And then because I've, you know, I'm so fortunate in what I do that I've been able to kind of get dialed into the community a little bit here in Los Angeles. I've been able to kind of bring some other folks on, you know, in terms of talent and stuff like that, especially because some of the um, Spotlight is going to be on the special effects throughout the 80s because it really was this golden age of modern effects. And so, you know, it's it's been incredible to see this all come together the way that it has. Like we've we've brought in some of the, the biggest talents in terms of directors, um, you know, being able to have, you know, a lot of the actors involved, people who grew up loving horror, um, who've gone on to do great things in the genre world, like Lee Winnell, like, you know, we've got Joe Dante, Mick Garris is wow. involved. I mean, it's it really is sort of this who's who celebration. Um, and it's really exciting for me because we've had so many amazing genre documentaries over the years. I mean, you have like Never Sleep Again, you know, Crystal Lake Memories. You know, you have Leviathan that did the Hellraiser movies, the Fright Night documentary. But nothing has sort of looked at, had this sort of encapsulating look at the 1980s in the context of what this decade of horror really meant um because as we talked a little bit before like you know it was a really fun decade for horror but you know there were some things that were being pushed um through the genre in ways that 
you know, maybe we hadn't seen before, like movie, you know, obviously there's like they live, you know, which we're pretty much living in these days, you You know, and you have movies like The Fly, you know, that we're kind of looking at some of the social issues that were coming up throughout the 1980s. So it's a really a fascinating time, I think, in horror because it's it's the most enjoyable. But I also think it's one of, you know, sort of the most envelope pushing in a lot of ways, um, because we were starting to shake up some of these things that had sort of become traditions in the genre and kind of putting a new spin on them. And for me, I think, you know, I was fortunate enough to grow up during the decade because uh, I'm old. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, so I am I feel very fortunate that I got to live through a lot of this stuff. Uh, and I think I'm hoping, you know, that this will be something that, you know, fans who grew up in this decade will enjoy it. But I'm really hoping also that for fans who are younger, who are maybe newer to the horror genre and stuff like that, like this is a really good gateway for them. Um, because, you know, is it, we sometimes as horror fans can be a little territorial, but for me, I'm, I'm all about more than merrier. So if this is something that some kid watches who's like 15 years old and somehow dives headfirst into the horror genre because of what we've been able to put together for this, like that's so cool to me. And I really hope yeah, it does. Yeah, that's the goal. Yeah, so. For sure. That's how we keep getting good horror fans throughout the years. We have to give them good stuff. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, just even the teaser trailer for this, when I went to 80s horror uh, film or 80s horror doc.com, I, I was blown away. I immediately sent an email and I was like, how can I help with this show? Because I know exactly where you're coming from. Sometimes it feels like there's a, a gate or people can be gatekeepers, but uh, but once you pass through and you realize that this these films can be for absolutely everyone and there's an angle to enjoy on most of these films, whether it be social issues or just straight up a fun, goofy horror movie, uh, there's a little something for everyone. No, absolutely. And I mean, I also think just because, too, we're, you know, everything kind of headed in the 90s with digital and stuff like that. And that's not a knock because I do think, you know, there is a time and place for digital effects. Um, we wouldn't have a lot of our favorite movies without them. But I think when the industry began to sort of favor those instead of practical effects, it made it for kind of a sort of drab time in sure in horror like in in, that's not to say that there aren't really great 90s horror movies with amazing effects because there are things like demon knight is like one of my favorites universal pictures is proud to present the motion picture directing debut of one of america's most talented and respected artists Cut! cut 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 oh hello kitties so glad you could join me your pal, the Crypt Keeper, has gone Hollywood in a big way. I'm directing my first feature film. Care for a little shriek preview? <coughs> for my big scream premiere, I wanted lots of suspense. Uh-oh. Special effects. Sex. Yeah. Violence. The kind of thing you could really sink your teeth into. Frights! Camera! Action! Um, but I think, you know, the 80s, it was just like an, a decade where everything felt possible. And then the 90s, it kind of felt like everybody was pulling back because they were scared again. You know, because it is a, it's a money industry still. You know, making movies, it should be fun. But at the end of the day, somebody needs to make money. 
you know, and I think the 90s is where we start to see it pull back. And then, you know, thankfully, the 2000s is when we really started to see things getting pushed on the independent side. And I think that's why we're now in this boom where we're getting great stuff on the independent side, but we're also getting really good stuff on the studio side. And it's been a very long time since I think you could say that about this genre. I would actually say the last time may have been the 80s. Yeah, I was uh, having a very similar conversation the other day about how things are starting to seem uh, exciting again because people are, specifically, we were talking about the Child's Play news that has been coming out lately. It's so confusing as a fan, right? Because it's like, I don't know which is which anymore. I just Uh know I want to follow the Don Mancini train, but I'm like, but what? Yeah, it's confusing. (laughs) And But I love that, you know, if Don is going to be like combating with the folks making a remake, it's like, okay, if everyone wants to fight to make the best thing possible, I am okay with that. Yeah, that's true. That's how you, you know, competition breeds creativity, I think, in a lot of uh, ways. So, I mean, it could end up being a great thing for all of us. Absolutely. Uh, Well, without further ado, let's dive into today's episode. Speaking of the 80s, we thought we would, you know, tackle a classic that we've uh, looked at in this uh, podcast before, but we haven't looked at it with this special guest, Heather. Thank you for being on here to talk about Wes Craven's A Nightmare on Elm Street. I, it is like I, it's, it's one of those because when we were talking like you know about a movie I was like oh gosh like I don't even know what to say about Nightmare on Elm Street anymore at this point because it's it is such a classic but then I was like my head started kind of rolling I was like I don't know how I could not talk about Nightmare on Elm Street at the same time yeah it, it's just like why not take the classic on it stars Heather Langenkamp Johnny Depp and of course Robert England bringing the full body of Freddy Krueger to the screen um, something that I think is quickly overlooked until you take a few steps in of just like how lively this character or how dead this character would be without Robert England. Oh, for sure. And I've always really, I've always been really fascinated by this idea that originally it was supposed to be David Warner, um, which is why he pops up in a lot of Wes's movies later on. Cause I'm, I always, I mean, I love David. I don't know what that energy would have been like. Um, it might have, I feel like it might have been a little more phantom esque, maybe sure. because of sort of that gravitas that he brings. Uh, and that's not to say that Robert doesn't have that, but Robert has a little bit of a different energy, I think, when he's on screen. So I, it's it that for me, I always play that in the back of my head, especially like during Scream 2, whenever I'm watching, I'm like, you could have been Freddy Krueger. What would this have been like? Um, but I love, but I love that we have Robert. I think Robert, of course you know, is the cornerstone of this franchise because regardless of how not awesome certain installments in this franchise might be, they're always still at least worth watching because of Robert. Um, you know, and that's not to take away anything from, from you know, sort of the, the, the Elm Street players, if you will, because, you know, we wouldn't be anywhere without Heather Langenkamp because she is became this emotional center for this franchise, you know, through this first movie, which is really incredible if you think about it, because if you look at this, I mean, this is, a you know, I think this is one of her very first film roles ever. I believe so. And you have her acting alongside, you know, Ronnie Blakely and um, John Saxon, who at this point were very seasoned in their careers. And she's just as good. Like she's oh, just she's so powerful. Yeah. And so to see this, you know, this raw young talent coming in with these sort of, you know, seasoned performers and then Robert coming in to kind of 
it's it's this beautiful sort of nightmarish opera, if you will, in a way, because it just it culminates in this big finale. Uh, and it was it really was. I mean, there's a lot of movies that scared me as a kid, but Freddy is probably the first one in terms of villains that really, really stuck with me. Oh, same here. Uh, gener- just the idea of like a shadowy figure with a hat is something that you're uh, as a child, I saw an, one of those images when my brother was watching A Nightmare on Elm Street and my brain just stretched it to something that was totally un-Freddy Krueger but then when I saw Freddy Krueger was even frightened more than where my imagination went. Yeah, I mean and, and, that's, and it, that's one of the movies where it really it it taps into something very basic but does it in a way that is so beautifully over the top in a lot of ways especially when he has like that attack scene with Amanda Wiss. It, it really like I can't even imagine what it must have been like to be like a teenager experiencing that movie for the first time in 84. Like I was a little kid who experienced on VHS, but to be in that audience and have that energy like people must have been losing their minds. And I love that. Yeah. Any sort of film that has that lasting effect on people has been fantastic. And then when you can talk about it for days, just like we are now, uh, you know, you've got something special. So with that, let's go into an IMDb user generated storyline. It goes like this. This is what popped up on my screen. On Elm Street, Nancy Thompson and a group of her friends are being tormented by a clawed killer in their dreams named Fred Krueger. Nancy must think quickly as Fred tries to pick them off one by one. When he has you in your sleep, who is there to save you? Written by a guy named Simon. I think Simon did a fairly decent job there, but uh, it can be extrapolated even further. Uh, (laughs) Did you have any huge takeaways the first or every time you watch A Nightmare on Elm Street? You know, the thing that always, I think what struck me about Nightmare on Elm Street when I was a kid, you know, kind of falling in love with the genre, it's the first movie, and I know it wasn't the first movie that ever did this, but it was the first movie I ever saw where a filmmaker was playing with your perceptions of reality and kind of pulling away these layers of, oh, you think you're awake, but you're really asleep. Um, And again, I I know it's not the first movie to ever do that, but it's the first movie that I ever saw do that. And for me, I think that's what really kind of screwed with my own sensibilities is because we all have to sleep at some point. So how do you defeat somebody or how do you survive somebody that, you know, biologically you cannot because eventually you have to sleep, you know, or your body is just going to shut down. And if it shuts down, you're asleep, you know. So it was one of those movies where it felt hopeless, but hopeful because Nancy was so resourceful and she wasn't willing to just stand by and let these things happen that she took things, you know, matters in her own hand and, you know, into her own hands. And I think what's, you know, we get the sort of, the doing everything around the house montage, which is one of my favorite staples of like any 
movie, regardless of genre, mm-hmm. is sort of the the do-it-yourself montage where you're getting ready for the big battle. <laughs> um, but Nancy's is my favorite because it was things that I could relate to. Like, oh, if there's, you know, somebody coming for you, find a way to trip them. Or, you know, I don't have gun, shotgun shells to, you know, put into my light bulbs or anything, you know, but I could try to hoist some sort of device that would hit somebody if they opened a door. And I just thought, you know, for a movie that was so fantastic um, and so driven by this entity that existed on a completely different playing field, the way that Craven then brings it all into this sort of relatable, you know, environment for this finale is just it was something really special, something I'd never seen before. Uh, and I think that's why these movies meant so much to me. I mean, other than the fact that I thought it was super cool that the girl playing Nancy, you know, happened to also be named Heather. Um, so, you know, that was something as a kid, I was like, that's really cool. And then when she was on just the 10 of us, forget about it. Um, so, you know, it was, it was just the perfect movie for me at that point. And it was interesting to me. And I don't, I don't know how this happened. And maybe it was because of dream warriors, but like, you know, the first, probably 20 times I ever watched Nightmare on Elm Street, like I was terrified of Freddy Krueger. Um, and I remember even the first night I watched it cause I, my mom was like iffy about it, but my babysitter had a copy of it and she had left me there over the night cause she had to work weekends. And so I was like, Oh Judy, can I watch Nightmare on Elm Street? And I just watched children of the corn and she was like, yeah, whatever. And I, I remember having to like go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, you know, as like a seven year old. And I'm trying to not touch the walls because in my mind, if I touch the walls, Freddie's going to come through them because he just did that. So I was just like running really fast and running back. And like, you know, I just kept my eye focused on like the nightlight. And I just and that's the thing. That's the earmark of great cinematic experiences is that you can remember everything about that experience and there's you know I've, I've we've all watched hundreds and hundreds and hundreds you know thousands of movies over the time over our time but if you look at those moments where you can remember everything like the smell in the air how it felt like you know that you're in the middle of something special and you know I've watched a ton of 80s horror movies and a lot of them have come and gone but like you know there's probably about 20 of them where I can tell you every little thing about those experiences because those ended up being some of the greatest movies ever. Oh, well, that is absolutely wonderful. I know exactly where you're coming from, especially on the tactile purpose of like taste and smell and just being immersed 100% in it. Uh, One of my last questions for the podcast I'd like to ask people is, was there anything that made you go, hmm... Anything that either stood out uh, more so than it ever did before for the negative or positive? You know, I mean, I think, I mean, there's always things about 80s movies where you're like, oh, you can see where like the little seams in the budget kind of come through and stuff like that. Like, I, I, it's funny to me that I always found the staircase sequence really scary. Um, and now it just looks really yep. delicious to me. <laughs> I'm like, ooh, that's a lot of marshmallow right there. I'm, I'm trying to think. Oh, you know what? This is this is my favorite thing. If you watch the scene with Charles Fleischer when they have Nancy in the clinic and the, and they're doing the dream testing with her, there is a really hysterical cat poster on his wall where the cat, <laughs> I think, is riding a trolley in San Francisco. 
Oh my god! And I, I'm going to have to go back and check that yes, out. Yes, I'm obsessed with that poster. I I know somebody actually filled me in on Twitter, and they said they think it's part of one of the Scholastic Book Fair poster books that they used to do with cats. Yeah. Yep, I remember those. So if anybody ever finds that poster, like that's kind of one of my weird holy grails of horror is to find this weird cat poster from Nightmare. So if you watch it, just look for that poster. You'll see it. You'll know it when you see it. And it. And then it'll be the only thing we can see in that scene for the rest of our day. Exactly. I mean, Charles Fleischer is going to completely disappear for you after that. Oh, great. Well, uh, Heather, thank you so much for being on the show today. I have had a blast talking with you. Obviously, you are one of the best when it comes to horror news and just bringing the history into this for everyone. It's been uh, a pleasure talking to you. And Could you please direct people where they can find you online or possibly the best way for them to buy your book? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so the book is available on Amazon. Uh, I don't have one of the fancy links where it's like Amazon.com slash mm-hmm. like Monster Squad or anything like that. Um, but if you go search Monster Squad book on there, you'll it should pop up for you. For me, you can find uh, all my writing over at DailyDead.com. Uh, over on Twitter, I'm at the horror chick. And for anybody who wants to learn more about the documentary as well, uh, you can follow over at Twitter at 80s horror doc there. And then also for the Kickstarter campaign, I believe if you just do a quick search of uh, in the Kickstarter website where it just says in search of darkness, I think it comes up like, the, you know, it's going to be the number one project. Or even if you look up 80s horror, I believe it's the first thing that pops up too. So, you know, it's it really is a, a labor of love by a lot of people who really love this decade of horror and want to celebrate it the right way. And we've been really fortunate that we've kind of blown away all of our initial goals, but we're still going and we still, you know, want people to be a part of this because it is a community thing um, because the horror genre is a community. Do you know what I mean? Like we are all the people, you know, who've grown up loving these things and maybe felt a little weird, you know, compared to the other folks in the world. And this is sort of like, our moment, you know, especially for those of us who grew up in the 80s. So, I, you know, I just can't talk enough about how much it means to be a part of this. Um, so I really hope people will check it out. I know they will. Everyone listening now, make sure you go out and do this. It's a great project to support. And uh, thanks again for listening to Pumpkin Spice Podcast. Uh, if you're tweeting about it online, use the hashtag Pumpkin Spice Podcast. And uh, I'm Rob Schulte. You can find me at Rob, the letter K, S-C-H-U-L-T-E. Uh, Heather, once again, thanks a bunch. This has been a wonderful time. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I I really appreciate it, and I'm always up to talk Nightmare on Elm Street. (laughs) All right. Well, then uh, that'll be it for this week, and we'll see everyone next time.